But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment, until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, or as angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Let us go now to Exodus 6.28. We'll read through 7.13. Exodus 6.28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from amongst them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The passage that is before us today, here in the book of Exodus, functions as an introduction 
to the story of the ten plagues. The story of the ten plagues, they're very famous, um, aren't they? Um, this functions as an introduction uh, to the story of the ten plagues. In verses 8 through 13, Moses and Aaron work an introductory miracle before Pharaoh by casting Aaron's staff before him so that it would turn into a serpent and then back again. Uh, this introductory sign is significant, and we'll consider it shortly, but we must also pay careful attention to what God said to Moses and Aaron in verses 1 through 7. For the words of God help us to understand what He was demonstrating through the outpouring of the ten plagues that are to come. So then you could see that this passage that we are considering this morning is divided into two parts. One, the record of God's word to Moses in verses 1 through 7. And two, the record of the first miracle performed by Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh in verses 8 through 13. First, let us consider God's word to Moses. To do this, we should pick up in verse 28 of chapter 6, where we read, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So here we still see Moses struggling in regard to his confidence. This is not rebellion here. This is not Moses questioning God's purposes, but this is Moses struggling in terms of his sense of adequacy. And I think that is fine. Moses is here saying, I am of uncircumcised lips. This means I'm not worthy to do this. I can't even get the people of, of Israel, the Hebrews, to listen to me. How is this great and powerful ruler, Pharaoh, going to listen to me? So Moses says, I am of uncircumcised lips, but the Lord reiterates to him, I am the Lord. And so here we have inadequate Moses contrasted with the Lord who is, who is strong and who is able. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, we find God's response to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. In fact, in the Hebrew it does not say like God, but I have made you God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So here we have the arrangement. And this will be the case throughout the whole story of the ten plagues. Moses would speak to Pharaoh but through Aaron. Moses would be like God to Pharaoh. He would speak the words of God to Pharaoh, but he would do it through Aaron. So Aaron would function as Moses' prophet, as an intermediary of sorts. One very important thing to remember is that the Egyptians considered their Pharaohs to be divine. We cannot forget that. As we consider this entire story, this entire narrative of the ten plagues, we cannot forget that the, Egypt, the Egyptians considered the Pharaoh to be divine. Uh, he was an incarnation of, of the gods, according to their view. In fact, one other thing that we cannot forget is that they also considered things like the Nile to be divine. Uh, what we are going to encounter here, therefore in the story of the ten plagues is God Almighty, the one and true God, making an open demonstration of His power and authority over these so-called gods. He is going to put Pharaoh in his place, in, in other words. Uh, we have to 
remember this. Um, here we have a showdown of sorts. God, the one true God, coming against Pharaoh, the false God. Uh, Pharaoh, the one who is idolized by the Egyptians. God is going to put Pharaoh in his place. He's going to do so using two very insignificant men, worldly speaking. Moses was this exiled shepherd. He's 80 years old now. He doesn't have physical strength. He does not have political might. He does not have great wealth. He is very insignificant, worldly speaking. And so too was Aaron. Uh, yes, Aaron was a leader amongst the Hebrews, but this Hebrew people was a severely oppressed minority. Aaron was nothing. Moses was nothing as they stood before this great and mighty, powerful figure, Pharaoh, perhaps the most powerful man on planet earth at the time. But God is going to use these two to put Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to open shame. God is going to demonstrate His supremacy over him. In verses 3 through 4, we see that God makes two commitments to Moses. The first concerns Pharaoh, the second concerns Egypt. One, God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So here is that theme again, which we have considered in previous sermons. God committed to harden Pharaoh's heart. He not only predicted that Pharaoh's heart would be hard, but he, in fact, committed himself to actively hardening Pharaoh's heart. It was an act of judgment against this idolater. It was an act of judgment against him. And by hardening Pharaoh's heart, we know that God will get the glory, for God will demonstrate His supremacy over him. He will make a public demonstration of, of, of His power and strength, of His right to judge sinners. So here we have that theme again. But two, God said, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, the people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So God would harden Pharaoh's heart and thus judge him, but He would also lay His hand on Egypt. I'd like to carefully consider the second of these two I will statements found in verses 3-4. through When God said, I will lay my hand on Egypt, He did not mean to bless Egypt, but to judge Egypt. The context is very clear about that. God judged Pharaoh, but He also judged Egypt in the Exodus. Secondly, God promised to bring His hosts, His people, the children of Egypt, uh, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So this second I will statement really consists of two commitments. God's commitment to judge Egypt and God's commitment to bring Israel out, to judge and to keep Israel, to judge the Egyptians and, and to keep Israel, to bring them out. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that the title of today's sermon is The Righteous Kept Through Judgment. The Righteous Kept Through Judgment. And I think that is an accurate description of what God accomplished in the Exodus event. What did He do? Well, two things. He poured out His judgment on the wicked idolaters while at the same time keeping His people. He poured out His judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but, but He kept the Hebrews. He protected them, preserved them, brought them out of bondage to lead them towards the promised land. And one of the things that we will see as the Exodus story unfolds is that God knows how to do this. He is able to do it. God knows how to do this. He is able to pour out wrath on the ungodly, 
while preserving his own. Peter drew attention to this reality in that passage that we read just a moment ago. In 2 Peter 2, we are reminded of how God preserved Noah and his family while judging the world with a flood. And how God preserved Lot and his family while pouring out his judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah. I trust that you're familiar with both of those stories. The story of the flood and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Both of these stories are about God's just judgments being poured out upon the wicked. But both of these stories also contain this theme. God knows those who are His. And He is able to keep them. Even as they dwell in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. He's able to distinguish between the godly and the ungodly. He's able to pour out His wrath upon the ungodly, the wicked, the profane, while simultaneously keeping His own, even as they live there in the midst of this people. That is how Peter concludes. He gives these examples. If God did this, and if God did that in the days of the flood, and in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, if, if He did this and that, then, he concludes, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And I would argue that this is a major theme in the Exodus story too. Here God speaks to Moses and promises to simultaneously judge the Egyptians and to keep the Hebrews. Again, He would lay His hand on Egypt and bring His hosts, that is to say His army, His people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. That is Exodus 7, 3-4. This is what He's going to do. He's going to bring His people out by great acts of judgment, simultaneously judging the wicked and keeping His own. So I'm wanting you to see that this is kind of a big theme in the Exodus story. It really comes out in that story regarding the last of the ten so-called plagues that involved the angel of death and the death of the firstborn of Egypt, whereas the Hebrews were spared, the angel of death passed over them. It's a big theme in this Exodus story, and it's a very big theme in the overarching story of redemption that is told throughout Scripture. Peter knew this, and that is why he said, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of, of judgment. Peter wished to emphasize this as he wrote to Christians living in the new covenant era. And this should matter greatly to us, brothers and sisters. This theme should be near and dear to our hearts, for we, like Noah, like Lot, and the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, we sojourn in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, to use Paul's language from Philippians 2.15. This is our experience. These experiences of Noah and of Lot and of the Hebrews while in Egyptian captivity, these experiences of theirs mirror ours. They were sojourners. They dwelt in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But do you see that God, God knew how? To keep His own. He knew how to keep them pure. He knew how to protect them from the outpouring of His wrath upon the ungodly when it came to that. He knew how to keep the wicked under judgment until the day of judgment. And so, brothers and sisters, we must know for certain 
that God is able to simultaneously judge the wicked and to keep the righteous. He knows who are His, and He is able to preserve His, even while He pours out His wrath. This should matter to us greatly, always, but especially in these days, when we sense that the, wicked around, the wickedness around us is so very great. You can sense it, can't you? I could feel it. You can feel it. Um, things, things aren't right in the world. Uh, so much is wrong in this nation and world. God sees it all. And I am saying He's able to judge with precision and to keep those who are His, to bring them safely into the promised land. And this should bring us great comfort and peace, brothers and sisters. In verse 5 we find these words, The Egyptian shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. This brings us back to a point that was made in previous sermons. The Exodus event was a demonstration, an open demonstration of God's power and supremacy over all things in heaven and on earth. Yes, even the king of Egypt himself and the so-called gods of Egypt are in subjection to God, the creator of all things seen and unseen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, God says. What I am about to do is going to be a demonstration of the fact that I am the Lord and there is no other. Verses 6 and 7 tell us about Moses and Aaron's obedience. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now we learn Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Notice this about Moses and Aaron. Though they had their doubts, though they had their shortcomings and their failures, they were obedient in the end. And I think they are to be commended for this. But we must also acknowledge that they were obedient by the grace of God. Both things are true. God was very patient with Moses, wasn't He? Finally, we have come to Moses taking action, Moses obeying and going to Pharaoh and, and saying, God says, let my people go. Finally, he has done it. But it's taken a very long time, hasn't it? He's 80 years old now. And he's even struggled in the, in the not-so-distant past in this story. He struggled tremendously uh, to be obedient to, to God. He, he doubted for a time, but God was patient with him. He was gracious to him. He put up with Moses' lack of faith and reassured him over and over again that he was the Lord. I am the Lord, he says again and again, and that he would surely do all that he had promised. Um, may we be faithful like Moses. And Lord, we pray that you be gracious to us as you were to him. We come now to the second half of our text for today, wherein we learn of the first sign that Moses and Aaron worked before Pharaoh. Signs demonstrate things. Signs demonstrate things. And soon we will hear about ten signs that God worked in Egypt. We commonly call them the ten plagues. But here we learn of an initial sign that was worked before Pharaoh. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. A serpent. Evidently, it was Pharaoh's custom to request that miracles be performed before his eyes in order to prove that things were true. 
Soon we will learn about the wise men and sorcerers of Egypt. Evidently these had learned how to comply with Pharaoh's demands by working miracles before him. And as the narrative unfolds, we will see that these, the the sorcerers and magicians of, of, of Egypt, will be exposed as frauds, as charlatans, as tricksters, and not real miracle workers, as they claimed. But the wonders performed by Moses and Aaron would be undeniably the works of God. The magicians of Egypt will come to admit it themselves. Uh, They say after the third of the ten plagues, this is the finger of God. But then Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen as the Lord had said. That is Exodus 8.19. So even the magicians themselves would come to admit uh, these things that we are seeing It's the finger of God. This is real, what is happening. And there's no other explanation except to say that God is at work here. So here is what Moses and Aaron were to do when Pharaoh requested a miracle. Moses was to say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. What, what a strange thing. Could you imagine, imagine witnessing something like this? What we must ask is, what is the meaning of this sign? Signs signify things. They demonstrate things. They, they have messages embedded within them. What is the meaning of, of this sign? Well, I think we may say with certainty that the staff was in those days a symbol of authority. It was a tool in the hand of its owner. We must also also acknowledge that was a very common thing. All of these observations are helpful in, in, in understanding the significance of this sign. We should also know that the serpent was a symbol of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, had a serpent as kind of his logo, as it were. You know, the serpent symbolized Pharaoh, and so when the staff a symbol of authority, a tool in the hand of its owner, a common thing, was transformed into a serpent and then taken up again. It signified that the Lord had authority over Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was a tool in the hand of his Maker, and that he himself was a common thing and not in fact divine as he claimed. In other words, the Lord was the one who brought Pharaoh into existence and exercised authority over him in life and in death. I think all of that was being signified by the working of this miracle before Pharaoh. It was a legitimate miracle that was worked. The staff became a serpent. But Pharaoh could not allow this sign to stand unanswered. To do so would mean that these men were right and he was in the wrong. And so he summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. I think we are to understand this to mean by their trickery. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. And that this was mere trickery and not a true miracle is proven by the next statement, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Again, what a kind of creepy scene here, you know. A staff turns to a serpent, and then other serpents emerge, but the serpent that emerged from Aaron's staff swallows up the others. Uh, Notice that 
the magicians of Egypt had no answer to this. In other words, it's not hard to imagine that the magicians of Egypt were able to produce the illusion of staffs turning into snakes, but they could not duplicate the miracle of Aaron's staff, that is snake, swallowing theirs. That was beyond their capacity. There was no sleight of hand that they could use in order to reproduce that demonstration of God's power. This passage concludes with the words, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. That little phrase, as the Lord had said, is very significant because it reminds us of what God first said concerning Pharaoh's heart, that he would harden it. So here it is said that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. By whom? Well, we are to remember what was said at the first regarding God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So here, this legitimate miracle is worked before Pharaoh, and his heart is hard. He does not believe. It should remind us of the ministry of Christ, brothers and sisters. When He came into this world, He Himself performed many miraculous deeds. Many signs and wonders were performed before the people. And yet so many disbelieved. They remained hard-hearted towards Him. In fact, we see that signs and wonders do have this effect upon people in the Scriptures. They convince some, and they harden others. As I've said, we see this in the ministry of Christ. He worked these signs and wonders before the people to, de- to demonstrate that He was from God, that He was in fact the Christ, His words were true. The elect of God were softened by these signs, convinced and drawn to saving faith, but many were hardened, and their hearts grew progressively harder as they denied one sign after the next. So they witnessed that this man was healed, this man was raised up, this miracle was performed, the seas were calmed, etc., etc. Uh, the, the fish and the loaves were multiplied, uh, to mention just a few of the signs that Christ performed. They, they witnessed these signs, but those who persisted in unbelief were progressively hardened. Their hearts grew harder and harder until some of them came to the place of, of attributing the works of Christ to Satan. Do you remember that episode? They were pressed into a corner, as it were. They could not deny the the legitimacy of the miracles that were being worked before them. So they had a decision to make. Do we admit admit that this is the hand of God? And if not, what do we say? And their conclusion was, He must be working these signs by the power of Beelzebub, of Satan. And they were rebuked sharply for this. Um, So we see that miracles do have this effect upon people. They convince some, but others are hardened. So this is the story that we have before us in two parts. First, God's word to Moses and Aaron. He makes commitments to them. He reiterates His promises. And also, we have an initial miracle performed. I'd like to conclude today by offering two reflections on this passage. One, I wish to return to the point that God is able to keep His people while pouring out His just judgments upon the wicked in this world. As I've said, He demonstrated this in the days of Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And Peter was concerned to remind New Covenant Christians of this reality. Why was Peter concerned to remind New Covenant Christians of this reality? 
It is because the new covenant people of God are sojourners too, living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Or to state the matter differently, God's people today do not live in a land of their own, but are described as foreigners, spiritually speaking. They are described as exiles, as sojourners. The scriptures say in the New Testament, this is not our home. You say, well, it is our home, isn't it? I was born and raised here. I have a house here. This is my home. Well, in a sense it is, but in another sense it is not. We are not at home, spiritually speaking. Our home is heaven. Our home is the new heavens and earth. And so, throughout the scriptures, and in particular in the New Testament, the people of God are described as exiles, as aliens, spiritually speaking. And the nations in which Christians live today, they are all wicked to one degree or another, aren't they? And so we live not in not not at home spiritually speaking but but in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation our, our situation please follow with me here is comparable not to Israel in the promised land after the conquest think of it we're we're, we're in the middle of a story aren't we hebrews in bondage soon we will see that they're set free from their bondage Hebrews in bondage, there they're living in in an alien place. They're living in a foreign land. They're in bondage. They're going to be delivered from it, but what will they do for 40 years' time? Sojourn. They will wander in the wilderness. Are they at home? No, they are not at home during those wilderness wanderings. They're sojourning towards their home. And in due time, after Moses passes, Joshua, Jesus, will lead them into the promised land, and they will take possession of it. So we're in the middle of a story, and I am saying to you that that story typifies our experience. We've been set free from bondage, haven't we? We've been led out of it. But where are we now? Are we in the promised land? No, we are sojourners still. So when Israel takes the land, when they when they take possession of that promised land, that uh, is comparable to what we will experience in the new heavens and new earth, but we are not there yet. We are, we are sojourners now. Our situation is comparable not to Israel and the promised land after the conquest. Israel ceased to sojourn when they came into the land to possess it. But to Noah, as he lived amongst the idolaters, to Abraham, as he sojourned amongst the pagans, to Lot, as he dwelt in the midst of the perverse, and to Israel, in Egyptian captivity. All of these lands were liable to God's judgment, and God's people were there interdispersed. This is our situation today. And I'm saying to you that God is able to simultaneously judge the wicked and to keep the godly. And by this I do not mean that the godly will never suffer. By this I do not mean that the godly will never perish. No, instead I am saying they will be kept They will be kept from falling. They will be kept for all eternity. They will be kept in the most significant way by God. He is able to cause His people to persevere. He is able to preserve them in the way that matters. That is to say, for all eternity. He will bring us not into an 
an earthly home, but into the new heavens and new earth. And if that doesn't matter to you supremely, then I think your priorities are, are, are not quite straight. They will be kept from falling. They will be kept for all eternity. But the wicked will be judged. For God knows who are His. And He is able to keep them. As I've said before, these truths should always comfort God's people, but especially in times of trouble. And these are times of trouble, brothers and sisters. These days are, are not characterized by physical war, but it seems there is a war of another kind raging. An invisible war, an ideological war, a technological war. And it seems to me that this world and this nation, they are cruising for a bruising, to put it uh, lightly. I do think it is true. Right is called wrong, and wrong is called right in our nation. Corruption and injustice are running rampant. The strong are oppressing the weak. And with the exception of the technology, none of this is new, brothers and sisters. This is the story of humanity ever since the fall. And I am here saying to you, and I am trying to bring comfort to your hearts with this truth, God knows how to deal with this. He knows how to deal with this. He knows how to keep His people while pouring out His judgments on the wicked. Brothers and sisters, we need to hang tight to Christ and to trust in our sovereign King. Two, I wish to reflect for just a moment on our eschatology. That is our doctrine concerning last things. And I wish to connect I wish to connect it to what we are seeing in Exodus, in the Exodus story, and also to what we are seeing in the world today. I wonder if you remember our study through the book of Revelation, brothers and sisters. Some of you were not here for that study. It's archived. You can listen to it if you'd like. I think that was an important study. Um, it was important for us to consider uh, the book of Revelation and to set some things straight. I wonder if you remember what I taught you concerning the proper interpretation of that book, that book that has to do with the last days. Remember that I firmly rejected the interpretation that is so common today, which is to interpret the book literalistically, hyper-literalistically, you know, in other words, ignoring that it's filled with symbolism and it's to be interpreted according to its symbolism. I rejected that that literalism, the, the bad kind. And I also rejected the idea that the book of Revelation is to be interpreted as if it's only about the future from our vantage point. Only about the future. Instead, I taught you that the book is meant to be interpreted, interpreted symbolically. And I say here, if that isn't obvious, I don't know what is. And it is also to be interpreted idealistically. In other words... The book of Revelation does not only have to do with the future. Yes, there are some things that are described in the book of Revelation that are only future events, namely the second coming of Christ and the final judgment and the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth. Of course, that is future to, to us. In no sense did it happen in the past. But I taught you that for the most part, the bulk of that book, that marvelous book, the book of Revelation, describes to us how life will be on earth for the people of God always 
and until Christ returns. We noticed that Revelation is not organized chronologically, but that it recapitulates. Do you remember that term? That it tells the same story over and over again in cycles, but from different camera angles, if you will. And of course, here I'm trying to summarize many sermons in one brief statement. But I think all of this is pertinent now. These pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist preachers, and there are so many of them today, they are predominant. What do they say when times get tough in the world? It's the same thing over and over again from them. These are the last days, they say. The end is near. Here is the Antichrist. Here is the mark of the beast, etc., etc. And you would think that people would catch on. These men are frauds. And that they are frauds is proven by the fact that they are wrong over and over again. Here it is. This is the end. The end is near. This is the Antichrist. This is the mark of the beast. Uh, This is the proper interpretation and the fulfillment of what the book of Revelation says, or the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or whatever prophetic text they, they run to. But they're wrong over and over again. Even in the not so distant past, I remember talk of blood moons. Do you remember the blood moons? The end is near. Blood moons. <laughs> what came of that? Nothing at all. When are people going to catch on that something is wrong here? There's something wrong with this method of interpretation. They're wrong in their books and in their sermons over and over again as they read the times, as they see the the news headlines, as they look at the world and all the trouble in in, in it and say, the end is near. People need to wake up and to see that their interpretation of the scriptures is is off in, in some way. They're proven as frauds because they're wrong time and time again, but their air is not, listen carefully please, their air is not in seeing that these forces are at play in the world today, but in claiming that they are able to know the Lord's will concerning the time of the end. The scriptures explicitly warn against doing this. And yet they do it over and over again. We don't know when the Lord is going to return. No one knows. No one knows. Don't concern yourselves with it. Concern yourselves rather with living as God has called you to live in the world today until Christ does come again. Their error is not in seeing that Antichrist is present in the world today, but in saying that this is the one. Do you understand? Antichrist was present in the days when the scriptures were written, brothers and sisters. But there they go, saying this is, this is it, this is the one. The same may be said regarding the mark of the beast. That mark is not a physical mark, it's It signifies one's allegiance either to Christ and His kingdom or to Satan and His, you see. The mark of the beast was present in the world even in the days of the apostles. And it is present in the world today. Their error is not in seeing its presence, but in saying that this is it. This is the one. When these pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist preachers say, these are the last days, they forget that Christ is, And his apostles were saying the exact same thing 2,000 years ago. These are the last days. So, 
perhaps Christ and His apostles meant something different by it. Not uh, the return of Christ and the end of all things is, is imminent, but rather what they meant, and this should be so clear from a careful understanding of the, the overall scope of, of, of Holy Scripture, the story of redemption that we find there. When they said these are the last days, they meant this is the last era of human history before Christ returns to make all things new, for there is nothing left to be accomplished except the final judgment and the consummation of all things. These are the last days. It was true when Paul said it, and it's true when we say it now. This is the last era. In other words, there is no distinct time of tribulation coming. There is certainly no distinct future millennium that awaits us. Only the end, the final judgment, the new heavens and new earth, the consummation. We've been in the last days, brothers and sisters, ever since Christ rose from the dead and ascended the Father. And we will be in them until Christ returns. When will that be? The Scriptures are so very clear, no one knows. But we will be in these last days until Christ returns. And what will these last days be characterized by? What will they be characterized by? by? Trials and tribulations. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines. That's what this present evil age will be marked by. It's nothing new, in other words. Is the return of Christ imminent? I don't know. He could come now. Right? And so we are to live with this expectation. We're to be ready. But I do know this for certain, that the next thing we will experience is not some pronounced time of tribulation, nor some earthly millennium. It will be the return of Christ and the new heavens and new earth. That's what we will experience. That's what our hope is set on. These are the last days. There's nothing else on the agenda except the consummation. So what should we think when we see powerful rulers oppress God's people and oppose all that is good? What should we think when false prophets arise and seem to prevail? What should we think when we hear of wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, and famines, not to mention blood moons? <laughs> should we lose our minds and say, the, er- the, the end is certainly near? Should we, should we lose our heads? No. We must see that these things are more of the same. The people of God have experienced them ever since Christ ascended. Indeed, they have been experiencing trials, tribulations, and persecutions from the time of Adam's fall into sin and the first utterance of the gospel. These things have been common to the people of God. Now, I wonder if you remember that the book of Revelation is filled with imagery That is drawn from where? The newspapers today? (laughs) Is that it? Remember, the locusts, they're Apache attack helicopters, right? No, 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 you're looking in the wrong direction. The the, the symbolism is not drawn from the newspapers today or from, from today's current events. The symbolism is drawn from where? The locust, the locust, let's think. Hmm, where do we see locust? Uh, Old Testament, oh wait a minute, book of Exodus, you see, 
A lot of the symbolism that is used in the book of Revelation is drawn from the book we are now studying. Not all of it, but a lot of it is Exodus imagery. Think especially of the dragon of Revelation 12 who pursued the pregnant woman into the wilderness and attempted to consume her and her child with a flood of water coming from its mouth. But the earth swallowed the water up to deliver the woman and the child. I mean, yes, that has allusions to to Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary and and Jesus. But before that, it has has allusions back uh, to the Hebrew people being led out of Egypt, being pursued by that dragon, that serpent, Pharaoh, being led through the waters and being brought safely into the wilderness and led towards the promised land. That's the imagery being used here. So what am I getting at, brothers and sisters? I'm saying to you, that these experiences that we're having in the world today are not new. They are not different. The technology is a little different. But in general, it's not different. It's the same. It was experienced by Christ's first disciples. It was experienced even by the Hebrew people as they suffered there in Egyptian captivity and as they were led out as sojourners in the wilderness heading towards the land of promise. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Um, That's what the book of Revelation is communicating to us. That God has been dealing with this stuff ever since man's fallen to sin and ever since He called a people out for Himself from amongst the world. The pharaohs of Egypt themselves were a type of Antichrist. You understand that? The pharaohs themselves, the one, think of it, Hebrew people, promises of God concerning a coming Messiah. And what's going on with the Hebrew, Hebrew people? They're, they're oppressed. And in fact, the, the male children are being murdered by Pharaoh. The command is to cast them into the water. It, it's an assault upon God and His people and His promises concerning the Messiah. The Pharaoh that was alive when Moses was an infant was a type of antichrist against Christ. He was. Against the promises concerning the Messiah. And the same may be said of this one who whose heart is hard, both because he hardened it himself and because God hardened it with judgment. Here he is opposed to God's people, God's plans, God's purposes. He's a type of Antichrist, you see, present in the world even under the Old Covenant. And yes, they are present in the world even today. So, the whole course of human history is marked by this theme on to the present day. But what are we learning What are we learning? Well, today we are learning that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If that isn't a comfort to you in these trying times, I don't know what is. Our God knows how to do this and He has proven that He is able. He proved it at the time of the Exodus He proved it in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot. He has proved it throughout the history of the church. He knows how to keep His people and to accomplish all of His purposes, no matter what the evil one does. Let us take comfort in this as we bow together for prayer. Great God in heaven, strengthen our faith. Give us wisdom as we sojourn in this world. May we be found faithful, O Lord. Faithful in the sense that we trust in You, faithful in the sense that we obey You. And Lord, we do not know what You are doing in the world today. There is so much that concerns us. 
Father, have mercy upon this world. Have mercy upon us, we pray. But keep us, O God. Hold on to us. Cause us to hold on to Christ and to You. Father, whatever the future holds, may we be good witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the supremacy of Your kingdom. Use us, we pray, to bring many to salvation. Even if it is Your will that the days in the future grow dark, may we shine as lights in the darkness. May we be used by You to bring many to faith in Jesus the Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.